All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, and we present ourselves to you, Lord, as holy living sacrifices. Lord, our desire is to know you, to grow in you, and to be used by you, Lord. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd work in our heart, Lord. We pray that the Holy Spirit would bring to light these truths that are in your word, that they would literally transform us to make us more like you. I pray that we would grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you'd strengthen us in our inner person, that we may know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, Lord, that your love would compel us to serve you and to present ourselves to you in a way of submission, allowing you, Lord, to have full reign over our lives, Lord. Move in our midst, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can you say hello to a couple people? All right, everybody, come on in and have a seat. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out, please, and uh, turn to the book of Luke. Book of Luke, chapter 10. And I have a few announcements before we get into the word this morning. Uh, number one, this Thursday at 7 p.m. here in the sanctuary, we're having corporate prayer, and we do that once a month in this, uh, the third Thursday of each month, and that's going to be this Thursday, so it's uh, from 7 to 8 right here in the sanctuary, and uh, that is the engine of our church. So... Um, Next week, a week from today, we're having our prophecy update. So we do that every year around this time. And basically, we look at what the Bible says in regards to the end times. And we look at some of the things that are going on in our world that kind of give us an indication of where we might be on God's prophetic timeline. So that's next week. And uh, women's ministry is going to start up the 29th. So that's going to be on Monday night, and uh, that's at 7 o'clock, and that's for women. And uh, <laughs> we do believe there are men and women, and that's for women. So if you're a man and you come, you'll be security. <laughs> and we do need security for that. We do need security for that. And there is always uh, some men that come and do security for that, so... We're in the book of Luke, and uh, we're going to tackle the section of Scripture in Luke chapter 10 from verses 25 through 37. And I'd like to start off by asking you a rhetorical question, and that is, what really is saving faith? That's a big question, and... I'm sure most of you know the answer to that. And I'm sure there are some that think they know the answer. You might actually be wrong. And there are some that aren't really sure about what true saving faith is. And it seems like that should be a simple question and a simple answer to that question. But it is true that if you were to go and take a poll of people on the street, you would get a lot of different answers. And even if you talk to those that would say they're Christian around Flower Mountain, you'd get a lot of different answers. And when you think about what is at stake to have the right answer, to know what true saving faith is, if you think about the fact that our whole eternity is basically determined by our answer to what is true saving faith. And God doesn't hide that from us. He makes it very clear. The problem is that we often put ourselves and our own desires and understanding into that equation because to understand true saving faith requires that we have a true understanding of ourselves and our own nature and our own condition. And that's the hard part. 
And so in, in the scripture, in regards to this question about what true saving faith is, we learn that Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, 13, that wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by it. So Jesus himself says that in regards to this question about what true saving faith is, he says that if we were to the picture those who reject true saving faith, there, there are many that do that. And if we were to picture a, a road that would go to destruction, because that's the consequence of rejecting true saving faith. The consequence is eternal destruction. And Jesus himself said that, that the road of people that go down to this destruction, they're many. And yet at the same time, Jesus then makes that road very, very narrow of those who actually receive true saving faith. Jesus in John 14, 6, he makes that road not only narrow, but he makes it a one-way highway where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and get this, he says, no one comes to the Father but by Him. So you compare the broad road that leads to destruction to not only the narrow road, but the very the narrowest of narrow roads that goes one way, and that is the way of Jesus Christ. It kind of helps us to understand what Jesus said to a very religious man named Nicodemus, where he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. So that narrows down and, and keeps that road very narrow. So what is true saving faith? What's the deal with the Ten Commandments? How, how does that factor in in doing good things? How does that factor in does, is that a is there a thing about if if I do good things that that I can go in doesn't that seem like a plausible way a acceptable way to get in by by being a good person and doing good things and 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 doing works that seem like they're honorable and noble what about religion how does that work what if I'm a religious person? Isn't that what is that narrow way? And is that what God wants? That that I'm religious and I find a religion and I do the religious things and I obey the religion and what about all that? Well, what what about then another side of that is how the Bible talks about believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be you'll be saved. So can I just believe in him and that's it? What about those scriptures that say it is by grace that we are saved through faith? And what about those scriptures that say and point to Abraham and say he believed in God and it was accounted to him as righteousness? So what about believing in God? I believe in God, someone may say. What, what about just... Someone who, I believe in God. Is that saving faith? Someone who says that. What if someone says, so I believe in God. I believe Jesus is the Savior. And he died for my sins. Could it be that someone that says that, maybe not really truly born again? What if there's no evidence of their profession of faith. What if someone responds to an altar call and comes down, but there's no seeming effect of that? There's no change. They're just the same person, but 
one time, one place, maybe when they were a kid or at a camp, and, and they said, I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and then they go on with their life. Is that true saving faith? That's what we want to look at today because it's very important. The Bible is very clear about how these things work out. And so I entitled the message, Clarifying Eternal Life. And the reason that we are calling this message, Clarifying Eternal Life, because if you look at verse 25, that's exactly the question that is proposed to Jesus. So notice in verse 25, it says, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall we, or I'm sorry, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So there's the question. It's just a direct, point blank question. It's interesting to note who's asking the question. It says that the person asking a question, the question is a lawyer. The lawyer that's being spoken of is different than the, the lawyers that we think of. This is a, a, an expert in Jewish law. This is one that would know and understand the Torah or the first five books of the Bible and then the expansion of that with the traditions that have come through that. And this individual would be living their life according to what they would know and understand the law or, or this certain way that one would try to be accepted by God, try to inherit eternal life. This lawyer would have kept Sabbath day, would have tithed, would have celebrated all the festivals and the ceremonies. This, this lawyer would, in, in, in his mind, would be thinking that uh, I'm good because of how I obey the law. And not only that, because I'm Jewish. And because I'm Jewish, I'm part of the chosen people. And so in regards to that, I'm good. But notice it says that he asked this question in a way to test Jesus. So he's, he's asking Jesus, and he refers to Jesus as a teacher. And this lawyer then would be viewing himself as an, an expert. And so he goes to Jesus and said, you're, you're a teacher, so tell me what should I do to inherit eternal life. So this, this question then helps us, as he asks this question, it helps us understand straight from Jesus's mouth what it means to truly be saved. So that's the, that's the question. So now the, the answer is interesting, especially in a crowd like our crowd, in a group like our group, where we have learned and understood the gospel, we understand the importance of witnessing to people, sharing our faith with people, explaining to people how the Bible says that they can go to heaven. But Jesus doesn't do any of the stuff we probably normally would do. His, his answer, get this, his answer is in regards to how does one inherit eternal life. His answer is the law. Look what he says in verse 26. He says, what is written in the law? So he takes them back to scripture. Isn't that interesting? Because the only source of revelation of knowledge that is true pertaining to eternal life is only found in the scripture. Notice he didn't refer him to traditions or religion or other books or other sources or other people. He takes them right to the word of God. And he says, well, what does the law say? So how does one, how does one inherit eternal life? Well, what does the law say? 
So you see, for us, that's kind of surprising. What do you mean, what does the law say? He says, what's your, your reading of it? And knowing this lawyer is an, an expert, and he's sort of, what, what he's doing is sort of bringing out the deepest understandings of this person's heart, instead of giving him a pat, superficial answer, he's wanting this questioner to really understand his own heart first. He does that first. So he says, what's your understanding or what's your reading of the law? And of course, this expert in the law would know exactly what it was. So he just says, he doesn't have to look it up or study, just says because it's so obvious to him. He says, well, the law says that you shall love the Lord your God with, what does it say? How much? All of your heart. With all of your soul with all of your strength and with all of your mind. Why is he saying that? You may be thinking, well, I don't remember that in the Ten Commandments. This is the, a summary of the first table of the Ten Commandments, which is loving God. So the, the first table of the Ten Commandments is is basically these commandments about loving God. The second table of the Ten Commandments is about loving other people. See, he summarizes the whole law, and Jesus uh, actually, in another place, actually said the whole law is summed up in these things. And so what this is, is this: the, the law that Jesus is pointing to is the standard by which one would have eternal life. The law is the standard by which one would have eternal life. The law. That's why the law was given. The law was given originally to Moses and then it was expanded on. But the law is basically given so that human beings would understand what God is like. Through the law, we understand that God is moral. So he has moral requirements. He has another way to look at that. The book of Romans talks about righteous requirements. So to be right with God, there has to be a standard of morality or a standard of righteousness that we have to meet in order to have eternal life. And he sums up just a part of that in the first part and he says that really what the law, these moral requirements are a reflection of who God is and that they, they, they are summed up, the first part of those statements, they're summed up with loving God with their whole being all the time. That's the, the law, is that. The, the Ten Commandments is all summed up in that that an individual, that they would love God, it says with your heart, that means with your emotions. It says with your soul, that means with your will. It says with your strength, that talks about the physical part of us, and, and then your mind, the intellectual part of us. And, and basically it's just saying our whole being, that we would love God with our whole being. So to come back to, to the lawyer He's the one saying these things, the lawyer, the one who's asking Jesus about eternal life. He's repeating to Jesus that this is the requirement. And this requirement is that our whole being would love, and that word love is the, the agape love, meaning a self-sacrificial Love of denying of ourself and giving our whole self in love to someone else. He says 
that we would do that with our whole being and get this all the time. So that's the standard. The law is that we would love God with our whole being all the time and never not love God with our whole being. So that's a requirement. And this is from the lawyer stating this. And then he states the second part of the summary of the law, and then he says, and your neighbor, you would, you would love your neighbor in a certain way. Here's the way that's required. You would love your neighbor as you love yourself. So the, the lawyer says, well, that's what's necessary and required to inherit eternal life. Is he right? So in verse 28, Jesus says to him, you have answered rightly. That's it. You're right. Do this. Notice, do this and you will live. Or in other words, you will have eternal life. But notice what happens immediately in verse 29. But he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? What this is, when presented with the reality of the requirements of having eternal life and being right with God, he no doubt was pricked in his heart about maybe the insufficiency within himself to do the things that he knows that he should do, that he himself repeated. And so what he does, instead of confessing his inadequacy and his weakness, instead of confessing that, what he does is push back. He justified himself. This is a pushback. And so to, to justify himself, or in other words, to make himself feel better, to lower the standard or lower the bar a little bit, to make eternal life, which in his mind he would be thinking, he's religious, he knows the law, he's Jewish, he's in a, a better place above everyone else. And he, he was even probably thinking that about Jesus. But then all of a sudden, as he's repeating back the standard to be right with God, he felt the need to justify himself. This, this was guilt. This is what happens, and this is why it's so important, the initial question that is asked about saving faith. It's one thing to, to know in our head maybe something that the Bible says about Jesus died for our sins and, you know, repeating those things. But do we really understand, understand our, our real need for salvation? Is there something in us that feels as if we're good enough or we can do good things? Or are we presuming on God's grace in a way that's unbiblical, in a way that God would have to turn away from the very truth of his word to accept us into eternal life. This expert in the law was feeling that conviction. That conviction is our inadequacy, is our inability to meet God's standard. Conviction is uh, often disguised as many other different things. But I would encourage you not to ignore or justify or push back on the conviction. Because the conviction, and it, it is God's word that convicts. It is God's word that gets to the deepest part of who we are. And it is that 
conviction that we feel when received with faith that brings about true eternal life. And so this expert in the law who knew and did and performed, he was doing these things in a way that did not lead to salvation. And he knew it. He felt the conviction. And by feeling the conviction, what he wanted to do is then he asked the question, well, who's my neighbor? And why he was doing that is he is lowering the standard. He was wanting to think about himself being nice to a, a smaller group of people. A neighbor. What's a, what's a neighbor? What does that mean? Is it somebody who lives next door to you? Is that a family member? Who is that? That's what he's saying. And, and his, his rationale is he's trying to feel better about himself. He's trying to feel okay in comparisons to God's standard. And what we realize is in comparison to God's standard, we're not going to feel okay. And there are things that we will try to do to cover up the fact that we don't feel okay when we are met with God's standard. So in, in clarifying eternal life, we get this question, well, how? How do we get it? What do we do? The answer is the law. And then the illustration Jesus now gives us, it's all in this context. In other words, in this illustration, Jesus is saying this is what it looks like to love your neighbor because he's answering the question. This is what it looks like to love your neighbor. And remember, the love your neighbor part of the law is to Love your neighbor, how? As you love yourself. So that means that you will always, 100% of the time, love your neighbor like you love yourself. So he's going to give him an illustration. He says, this is what it looks like. And this is sort of a, a shock. It's meant this this parable is meant to shock it's meant to put those like shock paddles on someone who's dying of heart failure to wake them up sort of like a cold plunge if you jump into a cold plunge pool it wakes you up sort of like popping the circuits when you overload them in your garage, it's just it's one of those moments where it, it's just splashing cold water on this legalistic man who felt so good about his position, yet he is being prodded in his heart. So Jesus, he answers about who your neighbor is. And the answer is, a parable. The parable is one I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with, but there's a point that's very important. So he says, in this parable, there's a certain man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This would be a common route that would be dangerous. It'd be a, a descending route from about 3,000 feet to 1,000 feet. So it would be descending down, and in this route, uh, it would be rocky and scary and a place where a lot of thieves and robbers could hang out. And so this certain man is going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it says he fell among thieves. These thieves got a hold of him, and they stripped his clothing off. They wounded him. And that means that they were constantly hurting him. So the, uh, an onslaught of beating, beating a naked solo man though they ripped the clothes off and they're beating him. And they left and this man was half dead. In other words, 
He couldn't help himself. He was hurting. He was on his way to dying. He would have been probably confused, maybe concussed. He would have been embarrassed, no clothes, no way out, nothing to do. His only hope would be for someone to help him. So by chance, it says, a certain priest came down that road. So you think, oh, good. A priest, a priest would be a good guy that would help someone, you'd usually think. So the priest comes down the road. He actually sees the condition of this man, and he went to the other side of the road to avoid this man. He closed his heart to this hurt man. He didn't have any love for this hurt man, any compassion for this hurt man. Somehow in his heart, he was able to justify not having anything to do with this man. And uh, because this was a priest, this would be someone who's very religious and would obey religious things. And yet we see that being religious doesn't change one's heart. In fact, it can actually make someone colder towards other people. But then in verse 32, it says, then there's another person. So maybe there's hope. There's another person. This person's a Levite. So Levites were uh, those who, some of them were priests, but not all of them, but they were of the tribe, of the priestly tribe that would uh, at least be those who would help out in the temple, be very familiar with the temple. So good, a Levite's coming by. When the Levite came by, he arrived at the place and and he came and he looked and he too, he passed by the other side. So you you think about what what that takes for a person to to see a person dying in that condition and, and look and then turn away and go on one's merry way. Part of what Jesus is saying is he's he's looking at this, this lawyer who's coming to him with this question and then begins to justify himself asking who his neighbor was. And no doubt it it was something that would cause more conviction for this lawyer because he probably would have been coldly turning away from other people's needs. People that were hurting and struggling and having difficulty. This pushback of the lawyer of trying to save face or reject his own culpability, his own sinful condition and his own sinful nature When he hears this, he would have been awakened, cold water splashed on him of the fact that he had been justifying his his behavior. In some way, in his mind, it was okay to, to do what he was doing the way he was treating other people. And so he's hoping that the neighbor thing is is really a a condensed thing because there are probably some people that were like him, his buddies, his friends, and his family, he was treating pretty well. So Jesus then really puts the nail in the coffin, so to speak, when he says in verse 33, he says, but a certain Samaritan, a good Samaritan. This is where we get that. Now, the reason this would have awakened the conscience of this lawyer is because the Samaritans were hated people by the Jews. They were people that were half Jewish. And when the northern kingdom of Israel was taken and conquered by Assyria, then there were Jews that were intermingled with the Assyrians and had babies, and these were the Samaritans. So they, the, the Jews hated them and the Samaritans hated the Jews. And so Jesus, in this parable, he, he brings the Samaritan in 
And he says, this Samaritan, he journeyed and he came where he, the injured, half-dead man was. And his response was that he saw him and had compassion on him. So that's the difference. The, the priest and the Levite saw him and did what? They turned. There was something in their heart that had no sensitivity, no appreciation for the man's condition. And they were able, in good conscience, to just turn and leave him there. And as Jesus is explaining what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, what he's doing is he's putting a mirror up to this lawyer who is in his mind self-righteous and holy before God because of his outward obedience to the things of the law. Now a mirror's put up. And the mirror that's put up is the mirror of him justifying his action and having a heart that is heartless towards someone in that condition. Completely heartless. So the enemy of the Jewish people, a Samaritan, he would be someone who wouldn't know the law, wouldn't care about the law. They'd have their own way to worship completely outside of the pale of Jewish religion, but he was the one who saw him and he had compassion. So there, there was care, there was love, there was concern. And that care and love and concern, then it developed into action to where he went to him. Remember, the others went away from him. So he was driven by love. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds. So that, that's really an intimate, caring thing to bandage someone's wounds. Someone laying there and, and actually, you know, touch the person, touch their wounds, uh, stop the bleeding, and get involved like that. And then the Samaritan, he poured oil and wine helping with the pain and the healing. And then he takes this man who is half dead, now bandaged up by his own hands and given oil and wine for his healing and his pain. And he puts him on his own animal. So he lifts him up, carries his burden and puts him on this animal and he brings him to an inn, and then as he gets to this end, he, he stays there and he's taking care of him. He did that all night because in the next statement it says, then the next day, the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, he takes out money, and he gives the money to the innkeeper, says to the innkeeper, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Now, why is Jesus saying all this? Because he is showing and illustrating the law. He's showing and illustrating that as the lawyer said, first, we are to agape the Lord with our whole being all the time and never not do that. But then the way we are to care for other people is in a self-denial, self-sacrificial manner where we would take of our own resources and our own time and energy and we would expend it on a person who is hurting and we would do that all the time, everywhere, in every place, and the whole point of this parable is so that you and I would realize we can't do that. That's the whole point. 
We can't love like that. We can't love God the way he's asking us to. And we can't love our fellow man that way. So look at verse 36. Jesus, after this parable, then he brings this parable to bear on the heart of the individual. This man asking the questions who is self-righteous and self-confident in his own salvation or his own eternal life because of his self-righteousness. So in verse 36, so, so which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him or neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the man said, he who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. And so here's the point. Now imagine this man going out hearing this story and then thinking, first of all, to inherit eternal life, I have to love God with all my being all the time. Now, you know, you know what that means? That means I and you, you and I, we have never not sinned. We've never loved God all the time with all our being. We've never done that. We've never not sinned. But that's just the one part of the law, isn't it? We usually treat our family in a different way than we treat strangers. We usually will, with our families, have more energy to help them and to take care of them. And Jesus is saying the second part of the law is that we would even treat our enemies. We would treat everybody all the time by loving them the way that we would love ourselves. And the point is, is he's, he's telling, telling this, this man, okay, go do that now. And the man with the cold plunge awakened mind and heart, if had the uh, accurate response the reality of his own condition before a holy almighty God would have arrested his attention and woke him up for his need for a savior. His need for someone else to be that holy and that righteous. Understanding that he can never meet God's standard, his requirement, and therein we realize what is the purpose of the law. In Galatians chapter 3, it says, The law is like a tutor or a teacher. The law teaches us, tutors us in our own condition before God as fallen, sinful people unable to do anything to change our fallen condition before God, and therefore we need a Savior. Do you remember that narrow road where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me? This is the narrow road. The narrow road is the realization that we need a substitute because we could not meet the standard. The narrow road is that there can only be one substitute. The narrow road is that we need grace and it's not our works. That we need God's righteousness given to us because our righteousness is not enough. That we need forgiveness. That we need the cross. That we must be justified before God by faith and not by works. It's the realization that Jesus did fulfill the law when we could not fulfill the law. 
This is the gospel. This is eternal life. And this is the motivation and the why that we as Christians then, then subsequently do good works. So the good works come from the realization of God's love for us, the mind-blowing understanding of the lengths that God went to take our place in judgment. And as God then becomes sin so that we can be righteous, our hearts are warmed and filled with the love of God that compels us to go love people with the love of God that he gives us. So the works come from our salvation. The works are not for our salvation. The works come from our salvation. So for the Christian, and to answer the questions that we started off looking at, is how do works figure into salvation and and how does religion figure into salvation and how does belief figure into salvation and in this account we get the whole thing and the whole thing is we can't work and do good to be saved and so we believe in Jesus Christ, and that belief is then we put our full trust in him. Not just believe he exists, not just believe he did some things, but we actually surrender and give our life because we realize he's God. And because of that, we surrender our life to him, and as we do that, we become new creations in Christ. We are changed from the inside out. And that change then brings about a difference in the way we live our life. Now the change means we live to please God. And we have the spiritual energy in the Holy Spirit to energize us in these desires to love God. And as we're energized as new creation in Christ to love God, then we are energized to love people. And we may not meet those standards, but we don't have to because Christ already did. So because he met those standards, because he's the one who rescued us, when we needed to be rescued because he has fulfilled the law. Now our faith in him means that we have done all those things. It means that we identify with him through our faith. And now, now that new life in Christ brings about a desire to love him and a desire to love mankind, even our enemies. So what is saving faith? That's it. So now the, the question and the understanding of true saving faith, then it comes to our plate, where each one of us has, has to decide. Where are we at when we're convicted? And, and I, I hope and pray and I believe most, if not all of you, are saved. But it's possible some of you think you're saved and you're really not. Because the road is narrow. And so I want to encourage you and implore you. Because the consequences of dying without Christ are eternally severe, eternal destruction, because if we go into eternity without saving faith, there's no other opportunity because of that. 
it's not only wise, it's vital to dis- decide that while we still have a breath. To decide that now. Because there's nothing worth trading eternity for. There's nothing worth trading being with God forever. There's nothing. And so the opportunity then comes to us. Today is the day of salvation. And if you are saved, praise the Lord. If you are saved, this is a great day. Tomorrow's a great day. This next week's a great week. This year is a great year. Every tick of the clock is one tick closer to eternity. And so rejoice. Rejoice in your salvation and make Christ known to those who don't know him. That's the message today. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you for your word that's a lamp into our feet. We thank you, Lord, that you give us clarity about salvation. We thank you, Lord, that you paid it all for us. We thank you, Lord, that we can come to a place of understanding our true nature before you as lost sinners. And Lord, there may be in in this service or those hearing some people or someone that may just be pushing back. It is hard to look in the mirror and realize our sinful condition before a holy God. And we know that we're given many false alternatives to reject you. But Lord, let today be the day of salvation for anybody listening, anybody here that doesn't know you. Let today be the day that they listen and respond to the conviction of their heart that if they were to die today, they'd be separated from you and in eternal destruction for all eternity. It's not worth it. Nothing's worth it. And Lord, I pray, I pray for the church, for those who are truly saved. I pray that you would energize us by the power of your Holy Spirit to bear witness to you in this world and that we would be those who bring the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all and any who will listen. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand and we're gonna worship the Lord before we head out. And uh, if anybody this morning would like prayer, we're gonna have our prayer team up front and they'll be uh, ready to receive you as we sing this last song. Just feel free to come on up. God bless you all. Be safe out there. And uh, Jesus loves you. Never forget that. God bless you.